Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the Jayberg Wilk Learning Series for 2018-2019. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybaitmadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. Our, um, our topic for tonight um, is the theme of uh, the theme of love um, between uh, the uh, hu- uh, human human and divine, right? So that is to say. Um, what is the relationship between um, uh, theologic, the theological encounter, the moment of uh, the love of God, and, and the relationship between that and the human interpersonal relationship? In other words, in what way is uh, the, the, the moment of, of encounter, the moment of, um, of, uh, of dialogue and of, and of deep relation between people, in what way is that also a theological, spiritual moment? In some ways, this actually, uh, this actually really turns on uh, the different uses of um, the exhortation to love in the Hebrew Bible, um, the, the different moments when um, the people are commanded to or encouraged to, to love. Right. What, does anyone recall uh, uh, at least one of them? Yes, love your neighbor as yourself. Ve'ahavta l'reecha kamocha. Another? I'll give you a hint. It's from the Shema. The ve'ahavta, ve'ahavta t'adonai lohecha. Right? You shall love the Lord your God. And, um, and perhaps one other. I think love your enemy. Uh, well, not, not, I don't believe it's love your enemy, but, but there's certainly, there may be something that I'm not aware of, but this thing I'm thinking of is ve'ahavtem et ha'ger, right? You should, you should love the stranger. Um, so part of what we're going to be looking at is the way in which certain mystics in particular uh, understood the love of the other person as inextricable as part of the same thing as the love of God. To love another person is to love God. To love God is to love uh, the other person, to care and have empathy for the other person. So I wanna, I wanna back up first to, uh, to the Zohar, to the great classic of uh, Jewish mysticism in uh, late 13th century Spain, uh, where we have uh, the phenomenon of these Kabbalists, these mystics, wandering about the um, a reimagined ancient land of Israel in quest of mystical secrets, and along the way, they are constantly encountering um, they're constantly encountering uh, other f- characters along the road, right? 
And, uh, and oftentimes, is a, re a recurrent motif that we see in the, in the, um, in the Zohar, oftentimes uh, they'll encounter someone who they assume to be um, a simpleton of sorts, right? Sometimes this is characterized as the image of the donkey driver, right? So the one who is, the one who is leading a donkey or um, along, along the way. And, and this was a kind of stereotypical image of a relatively um, simple, uneducated person. And, but what, what happens with great frequency in these encounters is that despite the fact that they initially assume that this person um, does not have great mystical wisdom that they're in search of, it consistently turns out to be that this character is really a great mystical sage in disguise. And it turns out that, that where the person, where, this, where the Zoharic characters thought that this person did not have something to teach them mystically and theologically, it, it is, is, it's turned on its head, and it turns out to be that this person actually has great, great depths uh, to, um, to reveal to them about the mysteries of God. Um, so, so embedded in that is a kind of spiritual, ethical uh, lesson in, in some ways, right? What, what would you say is the spiritual lesson that's, that's embedded in that recurrent narrative trope? Can't, can't judge the book by its cover, right? Or don't, don't assume that the surface level of perception is all that there is to the matter, right? And this... And this it goes part and parcel with the larger Kabbalistic idea reflected in the Zohar and elsewhere that one should not be satisfied, one should not assume that the pshat meaning of the Torah text, the literal meaning of the Torah text, is all that there is um, to, uh, to the meaning of scripture, but rather uh, that there is a sod meaning, there is a secret, hidden, mysterious meaning a level of um, vitality and, and um, depth to the Torah text that is hidden beneath the surface, that the Torah actually is encoded with allusions to the deeper divine mysteries. And so too is the process of human uh, interaction and, uh, and relation. Right? So too is the moment when we encounter another person to not, to not assume that, um, that that person is just, um, is just as they seem, but rather that they contain a deeper uh, level of meaning. In the Zohar as well, this is, um, this is further uh, underscored by the theme in which the mystic friends, when they encounter one another, constantly will will um, greet each other with the exclamation, how wonderful is it to see the face of the Shekhinah, which is, a, which is the Shekhinah being a, a, a dimension of the divine, a dimension of God. Right, so they greet one another and greet the face of the other uh, with this excitement, this exclamation that they are actually encountering the face of God. They're not just encountering 
um, a person in in such a way that the person is 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 uh, separate from the divine reality, but actually the revelation of the divine face takes place through the interpersonal human encounter, right? The, the face of the friend is actually the face of the Shekhinah. How wonderful is it to greet the face of, um, of the Shekhinah? Um, so we have we have a, we have already in the in the Zohar this, in the late 13th century, and we're going to be focusing more on some 16th century material in particular. A few hundred years um, later, already in the Zohar, we have this uh, spiritual moral um, value that to encounter one's fellow human being is a sacred task and is actually imbued with a uh, discovery and revelation uh, of the divine. Um, now, before we go to another Kabbalistic text, I think it would actually be helpful for us to ground this idea in the way that it was developed by two, um, uh, two major figures of 20th century uh, Jewish thought whose theory of, of whose theology and, and religious ethics were grounded in this idea that, um, that the encounter with divinity emerges through the moment of relation with other people. It emerges directly through the moment of dialogue and encounter. Um, so let, let's start, actually, it's on the first page. Let's start with uh, the excerpt from uh, Mar Martin Buber. Okay. Um, so, uh, so, so perhaps somebody can, can read for us, starting with the, the, the Buber excerpt, um, with uh, extended the lines of relationship uh, intersect, right? So, and here, here, this is in the context of. Can everyone hear all right? Yeah. Uh, this is this is the um, uh, this is in the context of Buber's theory, Buber's theology of and philosophy of dialogue, right? That I need to be deeply present to other to the other person in the moment of relation, and the way in which I cultivate that present moment attentiveness is itself a moment of divine encounter, right? So, the, so my interpersonal relations are inseparable from my uh, relationship with God. Um, we have a volunteer to, uh, to start reading from there. Extended, uh, please, uh, straight. Extended, the lines of relationships intersect in the eternal you. Every single you glimpse of that. Though every single you, through every single you, the basic word addresses the eternal you. Now, it's important, to, it's important to recall in this context that Buber's philosophy of dialogue turned on the idea that uh, there are two fundamental ways in which um, people relate to one another. One is the I 
it relationship, right, where I objectify the other person, where I am, where it's where it's utilitarian, where it's bound up in my own ego and ambition, where it's a kind of narrow type of relationship, and then the more um, uh, challenging uh, mode of relation to achieve, which is often very um, evanescent, is the I-you relation or the I-thou relation where I'm able to be completely and utterly present to the other person, right? And, and all too often we come tumbling out of that consciousness as we become aware of, of a kind of meta um, awareness of that moment of relation. Yes, yes, definitely. Though, though Buber was, was heavily influenced by Hasidic thinking on this subject, which talked about two modes of consciousness, one being katnut, or, or kind of narrowness of relationship, and, or narrowness of consciousness, and godlut, the kind of expansiveness of relationship. And that, the, that that expansiveness of relationship is actually deeply fleeting, right? Because because we, we all too inevitably come back into that more narrow state of consciousness. So let's, 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 uh, let's keep reading the, the Buber excerpt. So in other words, the lines of relationship, or lines of relationships, in other words, the, the, the various human relationships that I have, and my relationship to the world around about me in general, that it all intersects in the eternal you, that is to say, these all point toward this theological relationship to God as the eternal um, other in, 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 to which I am related. In every sphere, in every relational act, in everything that becomes present to us, we gaze, we gaze toward the train of the eternal you. In each we perceive a breath of it. In each you we address the eternal you. In every sphere, according to its manner, all spheres are included in it, while it is included in none. Though all of them, through all of through them, through all of them, forgive me, shines the one's presence. Through all, yes. So through all of them shines the one presence. Um, in each we perceive a breath of it. In every you, we address the eternal you, right? So in, in, in other words, in every, um, in every moment and event of relationship in our everyday lives, there is also a dimension that ultimately uh, reverberates with that theological relationship, right? So, 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 there's, so, so the two are, are, are already intersecting in, in Buber's mind. Kind of the idea of um, when you mentioned before that the uh, Kabbalists greeted each other, how wonderful it is to see, to greet the Shekhinah or something like that. Right. It's the idea that we are supposedly all created in the image of God. So if we are all created in the image of God, looking at another person, we should see that that aspect of God in it. Therefore, it is a two-dimensional relationship. It's, it's with the person who's imbued with the image of God. Yeah, yes, I think that's a very important point, um, and, um, and, that's, and that's a deep 
part of it. There's no question, right? So, so, so it's it's right. It's a it's a reflection of the image of God. But I but I actually think that something even more radical is being said, right? And this relates uh, somewhat to to uh, to what we were, some of us were learning earlier today, which is to say that the the human being actually becomes the locus, right, or the, or the place in which God becomes manifest in the world, right? Or in this case, the moment of relationship between two people becomes the moment in which God becomes manifest uh, in the world. And we're, we're going to see momentarily that uh, Immanuel Levinas, a French Jewish philosopher, takes this um, a step even further uh, where, where, where ethics and um, spiritual theological presence are um, intertwined in an even deeper way, right? So in other words, the, where, where we see a, this later reverberation of the fact of something that we saw, what I paraphrased in, with regard to the Zohar and what we'll see with, in, in regard to the Shnei Luchot Abrit, that uh, and right? So you should love your fellow person, and I should, and you should love the Lord your God. Are one also has deep ethical implications, right? So this is how it becomes a moment of mystical ethics or spiritual ethics, because it's through my responsibility for the other person, right? My moral responsibility for the other person becomes realized. My my revelatory encounter with God. Are we to take Martin Buber's words as, as though he's giving direction, or are they aspirational? Uh, how are we to take them? Um, I think that I think that in 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 his case, well, I think on the one hand he's he's describing reality as he understands it, but he is that there is a certain um, in prescriptive or um, aspirational and instructive dimension to, to I and Thou, to his work, in the sense that it's only, when, it's only when we engage in this cultivation of present consciousness, right, that I am truly present to you in this moment, and I'm not thinking about everything else that I need to do, or I'm not thinking about who you were, years ago, or, or who I was years ago, right? I'm trying to be completely in the moment, is part of Buber's point. Um, but, uh, but the reason why we want to look to Levinas now is that for Levinas, the point becomes one of um, ethics and moral responsibility intersecting inextricably with theological consciousness and spiritual presence. Right? That is to say that um, how do I encounter God? Where do I encounter God? It's, in, it's through my moral responsibility for another person. Right? And that's, that becomes, I think, um, totally transformative. So let's, so let's now, if, if we have a volunteer to read the, the piece up above from Immanuel Levinas' Totality uh, and Infinity. Uh, who'd like to who'd like to to uh, start reading that uh, for us? Uh, the dimension, please. Um, the dimension of the divine opens forth from the human face. It is here that the transcendent, infinitely other, solicits us and appeals to us. 
proximity of the other, the proximity of the neighbor, is indeed an ineluctable moment of the revelation of an absolute presence. <clears throat> his very epiphany consists in soliciting us by his destitution in the face of the stranger, the widow, and the orphan. God rises to his supreme and ultimate presence as correlative to the justice rendered unto men. The direct comprehension of God is impossible for a look directed upon him, not because our intelligence is limited, but because the relation with infinity respects the total transcendence of the other. So let's pause there uh, for a moment. Right? There's a number of really, really rich statements here. The mention of the divine opens forth from the human face. And it's in my encounter... Right? Or, or God, the epiphany of God and, the, and the, the eruption of divine presence takes place as a, as, as a, direct, um, cor a direct correlate or it emerges directly from my encounter with another person's vulnerability and another person's suffering, another person's um, destitution in its, in its most extreme, right? or the person's desolation. Um, that is to say, um, right, God rises to his supreme and ultimate presence as Carla to the justice rendered unto men, unto, unto human beings, right? What does that mean? That, that, um, that, my, that the encounter with God, that the reality of God is disclosed, emerges to me, through the way in which I behave justly or unjustly. And that is to say that God manifests in the moral encounter with the face. Uh, Levinas um, understands the, the face of the other as having this commanding presence to the other person, that I, that by, I stand in the presence of the other person and I have an infinitely um, commanding, I have an infinitely commanded um, obligation to care for them, to look out for their well-being and to care for their vulnerability, and they have an infinite commandment to do so to me, right? So, so in other words, um, the encounter with the face of the other person, and the, the reason this is significant um, in light of, of what I paraphrased from the Zohar is precisely because so much of what happens in the Zohar is the encounter with the face of the other person along the road, right? It's both how wonderful is it to see the face of the Shekhinah, right? And that language is used a great deal or to kiss the face of the Shekhinah. It often, they often greet one another with a kiss or with an embrace, but it's specifically about the face that is encountered, right? That it's in the face of the other person that their vulnerability is disclosed to me and my commandment to care for them and to behave morally um, is presented to me. And what's key here is that that very moment of moral responsibility is also an encounter with God, is also a moment of spiritual experience or encounter, right? So at the moment I'm encountering another person's face, I'm also encountering the face 
of God, who is placing a mitzvah on me, a commandment upon me to behave in a certain way to this other person. But that sort of diminishes the idea of the individual who goes up on a mountaintop somewhere and, and has a, almost a godlike revelation of, of having an encounter, a solo encounter with God. That also takes it, that away from if it always has to be within the context of another person and another thing that you are doing, then where is our ability to unite with God on our own? Yes. I, whatever thing we see. Um, yes, precisely, right? And, and, um, um, and for those of you who were at the first talk, right, where we were encountering, where we were talking about the experience of nature as a moment where I, and I go in there in solitude, right, and it's, and, right, this was drawing on texts from Emerson and from Nachman of Bratislav and many others, that that moment of solitary communion with God is also a major part of, of mystical thinking and mystical practice, right? For Levinas, it's very different. He says that the, the, the primary, if not the only way, in which God manifests to the human being in this world is through moral obligation, right? So, and moral obligation happens in relation. So Levinas would say, no, you, 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 can't, you can't go off and have a solitary experience. You have to be responsible for the other. Um, I would want to say, I would want to agree with you that, that there's room for both in the human religious life, um, and that uh, and that we need both, right? That we, that 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 there's that there's an important place for solitary devotion and meditation, um, both as a as a way of of, um, of of the individual relating to one's existence and to the eternal and the, to the divine, but also in the way in which it transforms us into better relational creatures, right? So, so it's not just utilitarian, I, go, I do this so that I can be a better relational creature, but that it does have, have that effect. Um, let's, let's read on a little bit, and then, we're, and then we'll turn to, back to the Kabbalistic texts, right? So, um, so, it's, so he's also saying here, when he's saying... Um, this has to do with the, with the total transcendence of the other. That is to say that, that God's transcendence is manifest in this infinite obligation that I have to other people. Right? So, so that there's a kind of divine transcendence in the face of the other. And therefore I stand before that other with, with complete trepidation or, or complete feeling that I need to... Uh, right? Without regard for what I'm going to get back in return, I have to be present to that person's vulnerability. Um, a, God, a, a God invisible means not only a God imaginable, but a God accessible in justice. And, and now here, the, uh, the great soundbite of, if you will, of, of the paragraph, ethics is the spiritual optics. Ethics is the spiritual optics. Um, how would you translate that into English? Ethics is the spiritual optics. I think all that it's saying is that it's, it's your perception of ethics as gained from 
garnered from learning and prayer and the time on the mountain and what, your, what history teaches you and your parents teaches that gives you the lens of being able to do this. I don't think you could, I, I, I don't think what this suggests is natural. <laughs> I don't. I think that's why we're sitting at a table in 2019 talking about it. Because it's not a natural thing. I think it's what we try to teach our children. We have to do it very carefully because it's a crazy world outside. And not everybody has this knowledge. Right, so so we can say that it's it's aspirational in the sense that that uh, this precisely because our human nature sometimes or very often leads us more toward egoism and pride and self-centeredness, right? But there but there but there is also this other very important natural human instinct to care for the other, and here this is a a sense in which how do we cultivate that. When he's saying ethics is the spiritual optics, it also seems to me as another version of saying, right, that it's, it's through ethics that spiritual presence of God becomes visible, right? It becomes, uh, right, in the, sense of, in the sense of the optical. Generally speaking, but when you teach children or you talk about things like this in a much more simple way, when people or kids do something ethically good, we kind of all know what that means. That means being, being kind to people. They, they usually, people feel it. That's a spiritual feeling. That's how I would define what they're trying to say. Good, good. I think. Know, the other thing here is there have been some Jewish groups along the way who figured we don't need all the trappings of Judaism. We can just do good deeds. And that's good enough. That still considers us good Jews. But you can't sustain, and you can't sustain and transmit to future generations just the idea of the ethical doings of, you know, doing mitzvot and volunteering and all that kind of stuff. That's not transmittable in in the in just the belief of in God. You also have to do other things. Where he seems to be, and I didn't read the rest of his book, but in this paragraph. He's sort of saying, forget everything else. If you go and you do mitzvot for other people, like volunteering and feeding the hungry and all of that kind of stuff, you've, you've basically completed your obligation. Now, now mitzvot, of course, means, means commandments, right? So, so it's not, it's not, it's, it doesn't actually mean good deeds, um, though, it's, though, it's, though it's used in that way for sure. Um, uh, but there are various kinds of, 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 of mitzvot, right? There are, there are ritual mitzvot, right? I'm, I'm talking and, specifically and, about doing... And, there, and, there are, and then there are what are called ben adam right? Interpersonal mitzvot. These are also considered uh, mitzvot. You're, you're, you're absolutely correct, right? And this is, this is true to a certain extent about Levinas, but it's certainly true about the, about the Kabbalists and other traditional thinkers that the life of halacha was taken for granted, right? In other words, in other words, they, they, for, for them, not, not necessarily in the context of Levinas, but that the, the, life, the life of, of strict observance of the mitzvot in, a rit, in the ritual sense, right, that I'm obligated to put on tefillin, and I'm obligated to wear tzitzit, and I'm obligated to 
pray at a three, three times a day at specific times and say specific. Right, so those are major dimensions of the life of mitzvot. And I'm obligated to keep kosher and I'm obligated to keep Shabbat and all of it and so on and so on and so on. But I'm also obligated to feed the hungry. I'm also obligated to, uh, to care for the vulnerable and so on in, in, in this and that way. I'm obligated to respect my parents. I'm obligated to not shame another person. All these things, right, which are, we would say, semi-universal kinds of ethical models. Those are also part of the life of, of the mitzvot. I think the part of what you're saying, if I'm hearing you correctly, is that it's, it's true, right, that there have been attempts to say that Judaism is fundamentally um, about ethical monotheism, right? And that can be e extracted from the larger life of, of, of halacha. I don't think that that's at all what Levinas is saying or what these, or what these other thinkers are saying, right? That for them, the life of mitzvot and the meaning of the life of mitzvot and the way in which keeping Shabbat in all of its specifics, right? Not carrying on Shabbat and not writing on Shabbat and not lighting a fire. It said all of these very specific things, these are all understood to be, for the Kabbalist, ways of getting closer to God as well. What we're focusing on, so, so that's not to say that that doesn't exist. It absolutely does exist. And I agree from a kind of future of the Jewish people or what the Jewish people has been, um, that the life of mitzvot is, is central to that. Though that's not really our... Um, the, 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 our central question, right? Our central question, uh, while, while brack, in other words, bracketing that and saying that that's absolute, you're absolutely right, that that has been and, should, and needs to continue to be an important part of Jewish religious life and tradition. In this case, we're, we're addressing the question of how is my relationship to other people related in some way to my relationship to God, right? In other words, that we can't separate the two. Um, now, and, 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 the, and, and, and part of what I want us to, to zero in on here is this question of why the face as well, right? Why is the face of the other person um, this site of divine revelation or divine manifestation, right? That I see, how wonderful is it to, to see the face of Shekhinah, to see the face of God. Um, and why is it that, the, that, according to Levinas, the dimension of the divine opens forth from the human face? Or to bring it back to the language that we began with from, from Tanakh, from the Bible, and that we're going to turn to now, why can we say, or why, sh why should we say, that ve'ahavta l're'echa kamocha, you should love another person as, you, as, your, as, as yourself. And you, and you love the stranger. And are actually one love. They are one love. They're not separate. That's, that's what the Shla, the, the author of the Shnei Luchot Habrit, here we're turning to the next page, um, Rabbi Isaiah Horowitz, a um, turn of the 17th century uh, rabbinic figure, who was he was chief rabbi of um, in in, uh, uh, in, a, in in areas of Poland, in Prague, and then in Jerusalem eventually for the last decades of his life, and 
his masterwork, the Shnei Luchot Tabrit, which literally means the two tablets of the covenant, right? Uh, apropos for this week, right? If you recall what the Parsha is, right? Where Moshe gets the, uh, right? Moshe gets the, the, uh, the two tablets and smashes them. I have, a, I have a, actually a commentary on this coming out this week from JTS, so look, look for it if you wish. Um, in any event, Rabbi Isaiah Horowitz focuses on this particular question. And, I'm sorry? So um, he, he lived late uh, 1500s and early 1600s. The, the, his work, his masterwork, the Shla, as it is known affectionately, um, was, seems to have been written in the, in the last decades of his life as, say, in the early 17th century, the early 1600s, when he was already settled in the land of Israel. And um, the Shla is this really voluminous, massive work, which is both very innovative and also anthological. So he quotes in extenso many texts, um, some of which he's quoting by heart, some of which he's quoting from manuscripts that we no longer have. We, we often have long chunks of text that he quotes. So it has that anthological, it's like an anthology uh, type, of, type of work, but also tons of his own uh, commentary and reflections. And it's a work of Kabbalah, a work of ethics, a work of halakha, extensive, extensive discussion of the mitzvot. Um, apropos, we were just talking about uh, mitzvot in the broadest sense of including the ritual life and what we would call ethical uh, behavior, theology, Talmudic commentary. It's a massive work. Um, yes? Do we have a moral obligation to ourselves if we're supposed to love our neighbor as ourselves, we must have some kind of moral obligation to ourselves, which, if satisfied, will bring us closer to God. Um, so it's, I, it's, it's not something that I've, that I've seen directly with regard to, um, uh, in, in, in this particular context, though I think it, it probably would manifest in the sense in which one needs to... Um, uh, take care of one's, of one's body, one needs to take care of one's emotions, though some of those things have to do with the interpersonal ethical responsibilities that go along with that, right? If I'm able to control my emotions, then I'm able to behave in a better way toward other, toward other people, right? Um, From a Pirkei Avot in Enamili Mili, is that the order of events? Um, it, cer it certainly exists in, uh, absolutely as one of the foundations of Jewish ethics as found in the, in the Mishnah. That's yes. 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 That's absolutely true. Um, let's, let's, uh, let's read a little bit from this, from, uh, from this text and, uh, and see where it leads us along on, on this subject. So here we're turning to, uh, he begins with quoting... Right? You shall love the Lord your God from the Shema, from uh, Deuteronomy uh, 6. Um, who'd like to read for us um, on, the, um, on the English side, of course, and I'll um, throw in some Hebrew for, for the fun of it. Please. You shall love the Lord your God, and it is also written, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. <clears throat> Behold, these two loves are joined and united through the oneness of God. <coughs> Be he blessed for this. For the oneness of God, be he blessed. Right? That's, that's a, a translation of Kadosh Baruch Hu. Right? So 
So behold these two loves, that is to say, the commandment to love God and the commandment to love your neighbor uh, or your fellow human being, are joined and united through the oneness of God. That is to say, um, that is to say that, that God's very self and presence um, uh, implores us or urges us to see those two exhortations to love as part of the same way of being, the same thing. All right? And this is, this is very, very mysterious and powerful. I mean, to think about, think, let's try to absorb this question of, well, what, so what does that really mean to say that they are truly one? What does it mean to say that when I properly love another person, I'm actually also loving God at the same time? And what does it mean when I'm fulfilling the command of the Shema, the Ahavta that I can't, right? In that case, it wouldn't be enough for me to go into the wilderness and just love God, right? Because to truly love God is to behave in a way that's loving to other people. Um, as much as I love solitude, right? Also, not all the time. Um, why don't you keep reading a little bit and then we'll discuss some more. For uh, oneness of God, God be blessed. For thus do we conclude. Um, it's the fifth line. The blessing for the Shema with the word, he who chooses his people, Israel with love, and he who loves his people. Right, Habocher Amo Israel Be'ahava, and Ohev Amo Israel. Also, these are also these are part of the blessings for the Shema. Right? Why is that significant? Because it's talking about God's love for us, right? Um, God's love for the Jewish people. Bocher b'amo Yisrael b'ahava, and ohev et amo Yisrael. In other words, in other words, that these are both part of the Shema and utter the verse of unity, right? So this is the verse of unity being Shema Yisrael na'elunai echad, right? Um, and after this, yeah. he who loves his people, Israel, and under the verse of unity. And after this, an exclamation, exclamation of the love of God. You shall love the Lord your God. The Ten Commandments also conclude with the word that which belongs to your neighbor. Right, so the Ten Commandments also conclude um, with the words that which belongs to your neighbor, right? Asher lereecha, right? In other words, in, in terms of coveting um, the things that belong to, to, your, to your neighbor. So all of this is to say that, that uh, the way in which I relate to God and the way in which I relate to, um, to, my, to my neighbor, my fellow human being, are, are deeply um, intertwined. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. Um, and and uh, would, 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 someone, would another person like to read the next paragraph? A person will complete... A person will complete in all of his ethical, religious... Qualities when he loves his neighbor as himself. And if he 
loves his neighbor as himself, all the more so will he love the holy blessed, blessed one who acts with, with freely given love, love with no thought of return toward him, the truest love. For you shall love your neighbor as yourself is the leg upon which this world stands. Indeed, you shall love your neighbor as yourselves is that which causes you shall love the Lord your God. The is that which causes So here it's it's saying that one actually leads to the other, at least in this case, right? That the fulfilling you shall love your neighbor as yourself, fulfilling in other words, essentially my ethical obligation that we might say is emerges through empathy and and the and uh, right, I love my neighbor as myself when I'm able to have empathy and to feel the feelings that the other person has. That will lead me and causes my ability to love God. Um, let's let's tease that out a little bit. If we're if we're if we're saying if we're if we're following this idea that uh, this ca- this causal idea, why would you say? That v'ahavta l'reicha kamocha causes or brings you to be able to fulfill the other commandment of v'ahavta t'adonai lohecha. So we're taking it out of just when I'm doing one, I'm doing the other, which he also says. But here he's saying, first of all, it's the leg upon which the world stands. In other words, it's pretty important, right? Or everything depends upon it. Everything depends upon love. But in, upon interpersonal care, um, but why does that cause or bring about, right? Why does that, um, why is that gorem as the, is the Hebrew, v'ahav tatadonai elohecha? What do you think? Let's if we speculate a little. I'm sorry. Uh, what happens if in, in the So what, so what do you mean in terms of um, the impact of midah, kineged midah, meaning, I mean, in other words, if somebody does something hurtful? I, 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 absolutely. Right. And, and so does that mean that there's no, um, you can't reach that point of, uh, with God? Well, well I, th- I think, the, the, I mean, the point that we're seeing here, which is the question, right, and the question, the question of, well what, well, what happens if someone has behaved in a very harmful way, to you or to another person, right? Do you still just behave um, And I think, I think that fundamentally the claim would be in, in, in some way, yes, right? That's not to say that we're not gonna have natural responses of severity or, and whatnot, um, but as a larger principle of how I need to govern my life interpersonally, I need to be guided by the principle of the imperative of v'havta et l'recha kamocha. My question to you, though, is why does that, why does the one, why does number one cause number two? 
Why is cultivating Vahavta Lerecha Kamocha a gorem for Vahavta Tanayelhecha? I would guess that it's a little bit like first you need to learn how to walk, then you can run. And you need to walk first, that'll cause you to learn how, how to run. What does it mean, walk and run? Well, run is harder. It's like, can be hard to love something that you can't feel or touch. It's, it's more difficult. But with your child, with your spouse, um, you, can, you, can, you can love a person maybe easier. And with that experience, that can cause you to do the running to maybe do the harder kind of loving to something that's more ephemeral. Ah, I see. So, 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 so your suggestion is that, that the interpersonal love essentially um, prepares you or, or, or leads you toward that higher love that's because harder to attain. Yes. Um, so, that, so that's a very interesting point, absolutely. Um, what, what, so, let's, so let's, let's see that as one possibility. Um, what, what, el what else uh, is, would, would you say, if, 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 if we see this along the lines of, of Levinas, right, why, uh, right, anachronistically, why would, and if Vahavtalarecha and Kamocha is here understood as, as ethical, right, that I need to be responsible for the other and have empathy and love for the other, um, or treat others the way I want to be treated, right, as, as part of this larger tradition. Um, why does that get me ready for this divine encounter? Please. Maybe it's just that by enacting this love or, you know, experiencing it, you come to appreciate the creator of the other. You know, it just... I look at your face and love, and then I realize, you know, I'm just like in the gear of engaging otherness, and then I realize, wait, there's a, there's a grand other, the ground of all this otherness that's presenting now in the other human being. Very, very nice. So, so, so perhaps, perhaps, perhaps it's also, I think it's related to, to what you were saying also, right, in the sense that, that I'm... Um, it opens me up in a different way, perhaps, to that to that more transcendent state of love, um, and and I and I wonder I wonder also if we can say and, and let's think about this. I wonder if we can say if vahavta kamocha is moral discipline, right, is about how I should treat another person. Um, does the cultivation of of love let's say in the sense of kindness, empathy, uh, moral responsibility along the lines of what Levinas said as well, does that make me more ready for spiritual presence, right? In other words, um, can we see moral practice, moral discipline as a cultivation of the self to become a worthy vessel for the spiritual encounter with God, right? Could that be also what ethics is the spiritual optics can mean, right? That when, when I'm able to cultivate ahavta l'reacha kamocha in all of the means, right, with cultivating a loving moral engagement with others, an empathic one, 
Um, does that make me more ready for this transcendent experience, right? In the sense that, um, that uh, only when I work on um, repairing the vessel of my ethical self, um, will I have the wherewithal to stand in the presence of God spiritually, right? In other, words, in other words, you could see it as a kind of purification as well, right? In the same way that the Kohen or the priest, right, is not supposed to approach the, the sacred without an act of preparation and purification until I've purified my moral self, right, I'm not worthy to approach the sacred. Is perhaps a way we could see this, right? And, and that when I've made myself more morally pure, then it will lead me ineluctably, inevitably toward Ahavta et Adonai Elohecha. Or maybe we could also say that the love of God, which is the overflowing of prayer, the overflowing of praise and love for God, is an act of devotion and worship that that is, comes from a heart f full from um, the loving responsibility toward, toward, uh, toward other people. Um, so you can just sort of get on the same wavelength. You know, even apart from worthiness, it's just almost ontological. You know, you, you just get in the right groove, love groove. The love groove. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes, absolutely. And and um, um, so, if, if we look at the bottom of the uh, the bottom of the page, right? He said he says very explicitly. Um, he says uh, that the righteous will be called in the time to come. This is a quoting an ancient midrash. The righteous will be called by the name of God. Do we have a third person who'd like to read from, from there? For you shall love the Lord your God is intended or directed. Who's feeling this paragraph? Sure, please. You want me to start where you, where you were? Yeah, that'd be great. You shall love your, the Lord your God is intended or directed. Oh, I'm sorry. You know what? Actually, let's go to the beginning of it. I, 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 th I think the first couple sentences are actually important. One who is bonded or cleaved to the attribute of peace you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He is then called by the name of God. So, so this, so this is significant to, for us to absorb the specifics of it. One who, right, hadavek b'shalom umekayim ve'havtalarecha kamocha. That is to say, what is, that fulfilling ve'havtalarecha kamocha is 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 a reflection of being attached to the midah, the attribute, the character trait of peace, right? When I can cultivate shalom between other people, with another person, then I'm attached to the, the, the inner meaning of ahavta kamocha. And when that happens, then it's nothing less than I am called by the name of God, right? So there's a, almost a kind of merging of human and divine here in a very um, striking, radical way. And we're gonna, and we're gonna see um, how he clarifies that. 
right, as it is written in the Sifre, which is, which is an, an older uh, midrash. In the time to come, the righteous will be called by the name of God. For you shall love the Lord your God, is intended or directed towards, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. A person who fulfills one, fulfills the other. And when the love and cleaving of God is upon him, then he is called by his God's name. The name of the Holy Blessed One is peace. shalom. God's name is peace. God's name is shalom. And so uh, when I attach myself to God, I then achieve this mystical union, you might say, with God, and therefore... God's, God's quality and name of peace overflows onto me. And I am then called by the name of peace. Um, and that leads directly to my ability to fulfill the highest form of Ve'ahavta l're'echa kamocha, because I've cultivated the attribute of Shalom in myself, which flows from my state of loving bondedness to God, who is Shalom. Right? So therefore, one who fulfills the one fulfills the other. Right? So, I've, so they become uh, merged together uh, in, a very, um, in a very powerful way. So, so yes, and... and, um, um, and and so now, where, where this goes now, which is, which, is what, which, which is kind of the culmination of these pieces from the Shla, uh, which is, um, so skip the next page and go to the top of the, page, of the following page that says, there should be a great peace between a man and his wife. Everyone see that? Uh, so here, right, here now, now we're going to see the, the ultimate couples therapy advice, right? Um, and how this relates to... Uh, theology, and it's taking also the question of kamocha to the level of intimate relation, right? So that's to say um, that the ultimate manifestation of kamocha happens between the intimate couple, um, and therefore um, how we love in, in that most intimate of settings is the ultimate example of how uh, God is either brought into the relationship or expelled from the relationship. And this is a very, very powerful um, uh, teaching uh, that some of my rabbinical students, I think, have gone on to use either under the chuppah or in other contexts. And, and, this is, and this is how we see this convergence, again, remember, of v'ahav telerecha kamocha, and how is God present or absent through the realization of human love? Um, who'd like to read uh, this one? The ultimate couples therapy advice. Um, no, we're talking. We're, we're on. We're on the next. We're on the next page. There should be a great peace between a man and his wife. 
You see that? There should be a great peace. I'm going to cry reading this. Okay. There should be a great peace between a man and his wife for the divine name. Yud Hey. So that's so so that's part of the 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 holy the holy name uh, of God, the Tetragrammaton, the Yud Hey Vav Hey. Um, which is not pronounced uh, out uh, out loud. Um, it, the, the first half of it is the yud hey, or the or or uh, uh, right. So 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 it's so it's considered part of the divine part of the divine name. So so um, so there should be great peace between a man and his wife, for the divine name yud hey dwells among them, and and it's and and, and we can keep. In, uh, in, in the back of our minds, we, we recall the, the tradition that says that God and God's name are one, right? So when we talk about the presence of God's name, it is the presence of, the presence of God. Where is that, of God and God's name are one? Hu um, v'shmo echad. So, so we, we see it in, in a, number, a number of ancient uh, sources, some of which, which were then um, uh, older rabbinic sources that were then adapted also into the liturgy and the prayer book as well. Um, but, but it comes to mean something different in Kabbalistic sources um, bec uh, because, uh, because the name itself is understood to be truly um, the presence of, in other words, part of the very being of God is the name of God. And for the Kabbalists, the yud hey vav hey represent in its totality um, the very self of divinity, right? All of the ten sfirot are collapsed into the yud hey vav hey for the Kabbalists. So that's to say, when I, when I think of yud hey vav hey, I'm actually thinking of the whole being of God, not just God's name, but it invokes the whole being of God. A man and a woman attain an indwelling of the divine presence among them, and did not instead attain a fire that would devour them. If they engage in conflicts, heaven forbid, then they erase the divine name, and all that remains is fire. So, so this, so this is an extraordinarily powerful uh, statement, um, uh, right? As, as, as if. Uh, as if those in intimate relation don't don't ever engage in conflict. The question is, um, right? To what degree, right? Is part of the is part of the implication. Um, but but the but the but the uh, the the uh, the play here that's significant is um, is is as follows, right? Why does it say all that remains is fire, ash? Because it's talking on the Hebrew side. It talks about ish um, ve'isha, right? Ish ve'isha, man and, and woman, ish ve'isha, and um, and that when they are together in a state of harmony and love, then yud hey, which is part, which is the representation of God, dwells among them and sustains them, right? Um, but when they engage in, let's say. Uh, the severe conflict, heaven forbid, they erase the divine name and all that remains is fire. That is to say, they erase the yud hey, which is one of the most blasphemous things that, that one can do, right? You're not supposed to erase the divine name. It's 
ineffable after all, right? So what does that mean, right? Then the yud and the he, which are in ish, the yud, ish has the yud, right? Aleph, yud, shin. And isha has the he, aleph, shin, he. You take the yud and the he out and you just have esh and esh. You just have fire and fire. Which is really um, quite, quite powerful, right? So it means that to some extent God's presence has been banished through, um, through that severest of anger. Uh, which, which relates actually to older notions from rabbinic literature, which were used in Kabbalah as well, that, that one who gives in to their anger is like one who engages in avodazara, engages in idolatry. Um, of course, that probably means that a lot of us have engaged in idolatry because it's a very natural human emotion. Uh, but the question is, right, how, to what extent uh, are we governed by that or not, right? Um, um, and, and, the, and the process of how do we, right, how do we transform our natural um, human weakness and, and, and human uh, inability to always control our emotions, how do we turn that into a spiritual discipline, right? Um, and so it's almost like this is a kind of intention, a kind of kavana to say, I don't want to be consumed by fire, right? So instead, I'm going to try to bring God into this moment of relation. And it's as though God is this cooling force of harmony and peace, right? God's name is peace. Um, and it's not to say that, um, that we don't all have moments where we fall victim to that part of being human, right? Because that would be naive and that would be untrue, right? The question is, what do we do with it? What do we do with those overwhelming emotions? How do we transform it into a spiritual practice where thinking about God's presence is another way of talking about allowing spiritual, the spiritual energies of God to be a force for harmony and peace as opposed to one of conflict and, and fire? All the more so should it be between a man and his wife. And if it is said that there should be peace between a man and his friend's wife, how much the more so with his own wife? Now, of course, right, easier said than done, we might say, right? And, and, and you're more likely to show, your, um, to show the, the fire of your emotions to, to your... To, the one, to your intimate uh, ones more than you would uh, right, when you have all of your walls up, as it were, um, in, in, uh, in ordinary social situations, right? But part of what he's saying is that, well, well if it's important for us to, to keep that in check in ordinary interactions, right, with, with, with other people, then how much the more so do we need to be mindful of this in our intimate relations, right? Um, and and again, right? It's, it's a who who hasn't um, who hasn't realized the human frailties of this reality, right? It's just a question of how do we um, turn it into a spiritual discipline. 
Um, how much more so with his own wife? He and she... Good for them in the world to come too, right? So, 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 so there's a there's, there's always there's always this this uh, this sense in um, in Kabbalistic thinking or in general in Judaism of of olam haba as well. Um, but uh, but but here the the power of um, the power of of interpersonal love at a in a more generic way, right? That I need to try to be loving and empathic um, to, to, uh, to the vulnerabilities of the other person that I encounter in ordinary ways, right? Uh, is here brought to a kind of fierce fulcrum, right? In the sense of, in the, the ultimate test, if you will, is, is when, is, when um, is, is, how, is how will I translate that into the, into the moment of, um, of, of intimate, uh, relationship and significant, sig- most significant for us I- in this case, right, is that is that the the act of um, the act of deepest relation of deepest relationship, the act of of um, here of of uh, intimate love becomes the um, um, the the place in which God's presence or absence is most visible, right? If God's name is peace, then God is present when there is peace and harmony. And when there is um, conflict, when there is anger and so forth, right? Then it's as though God is being pushed um, away. Halavai, we should all have the strength to, uh, to at least aspire to this, right? So I've been struggling with something, debating whether to bring it up, but you gave me light when you mentioned conflict. Uh, we're sitting here comfortably at a table talking about uh, uh, worthy objectives for each of us. What about a nation at war? What are the soldiers supposed to make of this? Um, yes, I mean, I, th- I think I think that first of all, I think that there there are um, there are various ex- various extreme issues that that emerge in in in, in different types of 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 of, of, con- of theological contexts, right? So if we can say like an issue that came up earlier today in, in one of the other sessions, if I'm um, if I say that everything is is God. Right then, then what to do about? Right, and this was this was a claim of the mystics. If everything is God, then what, then how do I explain evil? How do I explain conflict and so forth? Right, um, and and I think and I think that the for sure this is this is talking about ordinary interactions. Right, I think um, what you're raising would would fall more into the category of how do I retain my moral my sense of moral responsibility um, in such contexts right so they're, so they're right they're, that's a question of just war theory or morality on the battlefield and so forth right <coughs> which I'm not um, an expert in right but yeah so, sorry yes 
especially in war especially in acts where, where violence is required. Um, I, it, it, it's, hard, it's hard for me to project it entirely on, especially to project it onto the, onto the schla, right? I, I would be kind of speculating more um, uh, from, from, from my perspective. Uh, and I, I think that, I think that um, uh, it's, that, that, that we, ha we do have the ability to, um, to, uh, to, to speak to, to times when the use of, of force or violence is justified and necessary, um, but I don't think that this is. Um, I don't think I don't think that that's what this is talking about here. And certainly, I would say that even in those cases, the extension of this principle would be: How do I try to let? Um, how do I try to lead with love and empathy? Right. That is to say, even where. Even where there are times when severity or dean, as the Kabbalists would say, is a necessary part of my interactions or is a necessary part of life, how do I nevertheless um, always try to have empathy and judging um, favorably, dam the kaf right, to give people the benefit of the doubt, um, to always have those principles be my moral compass, right? And that perhaps if I can lead with some sense of empathy for the other, um, then it can allow me to live a life that is um, spiritually grounded in, in, in moral principles. Um, but, br but, but, br but bringing it out of, bringing it out of, let's say, the battlefield context um, and back to the, to the more mundane, um, ordinary states of relation that 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 everyone experiences. Um, what what are some of your takeaways from from what the Shla has has said here, and how would you relate it to what we looked at before with Levinas, with Buber, with what I paraphrased from the Zohar, um, or perhaps um, alternatively? How is um, my moral responsibility for the other person, um, and how is my ability to strive to maintain um, uh, to maintain peace to the extent that I can? How is that uh, a spiritual practice, a theological practice? Right? What's the relationship here between morality and spirituality? Does our moral obligation include celebrating the accomplishments and successes of our neighbor? I, I would think that it would. Yes. So why do we spend so much time on talking about just empathy that I, I think just as important maybe it's because you're saying like only empathy not not only but much more so you're not saying you're not saying just empathy in the sense of justice yeah, you're saying only empathy. We, we use the phrase empathic about the vulnerability what how, how do the vulnerable uh, how do they have a sensitivity or, or try to uh, 
develop a closeness to God? How does the leper, the blind, the disadvantaged, the uh, people who are isolated and excluded? Are we just talking about ourselves here? So I think it's two things. I think on the one hand, I think this this uh, is pushing us to and should push us to the realization that every person is vulnerable, right? So in other words, that part of my moral responsibility in general to other people is to realize that each person who I encounter um, comes with a whole set of vulnerabilities and, and uh, pain that I don't necessarily know about, right? Um, at the same time, um, and, and here, uh, the Kabbalists and the Zohar in particular, and this extends to these thinkers as well, um, are deeply concerned about my moral responsibility to, to the vulnerable, right? I was, I was just talking earlier in the, um, in the video interview I did with, with Rav Shmuley that's on Facebook now uh, with regard to my, to, my, to my book, The Art of Mystical Narrative about the Zohar, um, specifically a text that talks about um, the interface of, of morality and theology or mystical theology in the context of um, Sukkot, right? So there's a story that's told in the Zohar of Rav Hamnun Asava would come to uh, his sukkah and before he would enter, at the, at the portal to entry, he would first invoke the presence of the divine guests, right? The Ushpizin, if you've heard this term, originates from the Zohar. Um, and it doesn't really refer to the actual patriarchs and matriarchs, but rather to how those allude to dimensions of divinity. And in that context, he says, I'm invoking these, these parts of God that are symbolized by these biblical characters into my sukkah. And they come and they dwell. But then he goes on to say that the portion of food um, that would be for these heavenly guests, because you can't have a heavenly guest without a good portion of uh, chalant or whatever, pumpkin stew, um, actually needs to be for the hungry at your gate. Actually need to be for the vulnerable and the disadvantaged in your community. And it's not just that you're supposed to have guests on Sukkot and invite your friends over. That's nice and important. And that's what probably most of us uh, actually do. Um, but in, in the context of the Zohar, it says you, what you actually really need to do is feed the hungry, right? It needs to be a space of tzedakah. It needs to be a space where you bring the vulnerable into your table. And he says, um, and maybe in our day um, uh, that's done that way. Maybe it's done by trying to be conscious of, of hunger advocacy and, and tzedakah at Sukkot time, right? But in his context, he's saying you need to actually bring the hungry person into your table and feed them the portion that you would give to God, right? In the same way that sacrifices are like a, a feeding of the gods or of God, uh, both in, in, uh, in um, uh, polytheistic cultures and, and in ancient Israel, right? There's a way in which the korban, the sacrifice, is a kind of offering of flesh to God and so forth. That's sort of beside the point. But the idea is that 
I'm supposed to give some food to God for coming to dwell in my sukkah. And how am I supposed to do that? I'm supposed to give that to the poor person or to the hungry person who needs it. That essentially they become, my moral responsibility for them becomes my relationship to God. They, in their brokenness and their pain, are the manifestation of God in my sukkah. I'm supposed to give them God's portion. And it says, and he says there, that if you don't do that and you neglect the poor, then the divine guests get up and they're like, I'm out of here, and they fly back to heaven, right? Is that God will not be present if you do not have, if we do not have a posture of Vahav Talarecha Kamocha, Vahav Temetager, right? In other words, that um, I can't just have the goodies of inviting God in without moral consciousness and responsibility as well, right? Um, and not only that, but the, my act of relation and responsibility for the one who is in a state of brokenness and vulnerability is actually a moment of my relating to God, right? My v'ahavta l'reecha kamocha, in the sense of the person who is in a state of, of need and vulnerability, is the same thing as my fulfillment of Ve'ahavtat Adonai Elohecha. And I can't have one without um, the other. It's a very, very powerful example um, uh, of that, I, I, I think. Right? So, so, this is, so this is an example both of, um, I would say both, to, to, right, to, to extend upon your question, is both that, that we need to realize in the sense of Levinas, right? it's both the, the stranger and the, and the widow or widower and, and, the, and the orphan and so forth, right? It's, in other words, the person who's in a state of brokenness, um, I need to see their vulnerability in their face and care for them as a commandment. Um, but it's also in the broader sense, I need to realize that each person who I encounter presents with their own ethical commandedness upon me, right, in their infinite transcendence, going back to, to Levinas. And at the same time, it's also very much that, that the life of spiritual practice, the life of v'ahavta Lohecha, is inextricably connected to my ability to fulfill my moral responsibility to the vulnerable um, in my community. Um, right? So in other words, I can't just be spiritual without also being morally responsible. Um, and, in his, and in their view as well, there is no um, unspiritual moral responsibility, right? Of course, they didn't live in a post-Enlightenment secular age, but there's no such thing as saying, you know, I'm all about ethical responsibility, that religious stuff, that's, that's something else, right? It's, that by doing that, I am being religious. By doing that, I am being theological. Because there's no separating them. In that the way that we act in, in, in our ordinary lives does have that butterfly effect, does have that ripple effect, right? And this is something that the Kabbalists very much believed, that how I act in this world has a direct impact upon the very nature of God and the very reality of God. Right, when I behave in a way that is kind and empathic and loving and generous and so forth, I am affecting the harmony and 
he, and wholeness of God. And when, I, and when I act in the opposite way, I'm causing an actual rupture and breaking within God, right? So, so as we aspire to behave in, in ways of tikkun, of healing and repair and wholeness toward other people, we are simultaneously, and at the very same, right, the very same time, we are engaging in a tikkun uh, of God and of the universe. So right. So well, or at least to say that that um, we're bound to fail. We're bound to give in to our weaknesses in all kinds of ways, right? Um, whether it be um, whether it be in our ability to control our emotions or our or our uh, making good on 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 this high ideal of always caring for the vulnerable, right? That's to say that we can we can be compassionate and forgiving to ourselves that we're not going to be perfect, but that these texts do tell us what we should be always trying to do. Right? And in that way, it becomes a kavana, an intention for how to live, one might say, the good life. Um, and, and I think with that, we're, we're actually, uh, actually out of time. It was nice to study with you. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetmidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.